0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Justin Palmer Show. Uh, today's guest, my friend Sean Perriman, who's in the process of ramping up a campaign to run for lieutenant governor of the great state of Virginia. He, he and I actually went to college together in New York City. Sean's been on an incredible path as a lawyer. Uh, he's been involved in the NAACP in Virginia. He's always been an incredible human being. He was involved in student government in, in college when, when we went and he, he's he got great open views about the future of his state and making an impact on it. And I think it's it, it was a frame of reference for me to understand who should be running for politics uh, in 2020 and beyond. So check it out, Sean's an enlightened dude. I really enjoyed the conversation. We covered everything from police reform, affordable housing, running for a public office, and a, a number of other things. It was it was an incredible conversation. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. It's the Justin Palmer show. Here we, here we go. Woo. Mr. Perriman. Great to see you.
1: Good to see you, Mr. Palmer.
0: Th- thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate. It. I know you're on the the hustle right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're campaigning, doing the whole thing. It's uh, going pretty well.
0: That's great. That's great. What um, I wanted to ask you, kind of right off the bat, why why are you doing what you're doing? I ask myself that every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you know, I. Uh, it's a, there's a short answer and there's a long answer. Uh, the, the short answer is in the pandemic uh, and uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, I just felt like I needed to do something. Uh, I was frustrated. Um, I came back from vacation when the pandemic started and I just found myself sitting here and saying, like, how did we get here? Like, how, do we, how does this, how does this happen? Uh, so it started there and then once, uh, with what happened when George Floyd happened, you know, I am the uh, president of the Fairfax County NAACP, which is kind of the largest one here in Virginia. So I started talking to our legislators and talking to our state senators and, you know, and there was no sense of urgency. It was just sort of like, you know, these things happen. There really wasn't any sort of outrage that I, I felt. And, um, we had our own incident a couple of days after George Floyd happened right here in Fairfax County. And so seeing that, hearing what was going on, all of that, that impacted me in some way. And I started to say, like, I could do something more here. Um, we've had pretty much since, uh, since the George Floyd murder, we've had, uh, nonstop protests in Richmond, which is our capital. And, uh, you know, the police, they come out and they tear gas people and then they go home and then we do the same thing every night. So it was one of those things where I'm looking at the pandemic and I'm saying, the schools are closed. We're not providing PPE. We're not providing any sort of help. The government assistance, they gave people $1,200 and said, good luck for the rest of this, or this mess that we're in. And then, uh, in the state level, they had all these endless supplies of cops, it seemed, who were able to had endless supplies of tear gas and everything else. And it's just like, what do we have government for? They're not able to serve us in the middle of a health crisis. They're not even meeting. There was no emergency session here in Virginia or anything else. Uh, but then when people are protesting police violence, they have everything they need to kind of squash that, right? So it's it seemed like our priorities were completely screwed up. And so that's what led me to run, um, but before that, obviously I was engaged in politics and all that, and it was sort of going back to 2016 and just seeing everything that was happening there where I didn't feel I had anyone on either side really speaking to the the values and the things I believe in, right? Like, obviously I didn't agree with anything Trump was saying, but even with uh, Clinton, I was sort of like, this is not, this doesn't represent me. This is not like, oh, I'm jazzed about this, I'm really excited about this. It was. So, so it was this kind of feeling like, well, who is the voice of uh, a millennial like myself who has student loan debt and is dealing with those issues, right? Who is the person who is sort of speaking to the issues that are important to me? And that's what made me get involved locally in my community. Uh, but then as I got involved, you just, the way it works with community activism, you just end up getting more and more involved. And so now I'm at this point where I'm running for office.
0: So... And had you, I mean, I remember in, in college, you were involved in student government. Had you yeah. thought about running for office or this, it was like in, it, that was foregone because you were in the middle of like a full-blown career as a lawyer and doing some, yeah. some work in, in with the internet associate, internet association.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm still at the internet association, still work there, uh, trying to, you know, pay the bills and everything like that. But. Uh, yeah when we, when we were in college together which is I can't you know thinking back to us in college is funny but um, yeah I was part of student government. So I've always been someone who cared about like okay well how are things going and these were I had ideas about how things should be uh, and then I went to law school and I sort of it, it sent me on a different path right like I was had a service that student loan debt I had to make money and all that but I was always someone who was passionate about policy but um, it was it, you know, you start a family, you do these things, and then you're like, I got to pay the bills, and you kind of lose sight of that. Uh, what happened for me that got me back into this was sort of um, 2016, it's, it's one of those things where it forces you to do, like, are you just angry person on the couch who talks a lot of crap, or are you someone who really lives up to your values? I was working in D.C. at a law firm, and a partner came in, and they started representing the Trump Organization. Now, at this time, he was Trump the candidate, No one thought he was going to win, but uh, they wanted me to be the associate on that case. And I didn't know things could get as bad as they are now, but I had the sense of, I don't want to be associated with this. So I had to make the decision and there was more to the story than that, but I ended up quitting my firm saying, I don't want to do this. And it was that decision that sort of changed my trajectory back to what I was doing before where it's like, oh, get involved in policy, get involved with politics. And then he won the election and it was like, well, you need to do even more Um, because I've always had this sense of whatever he represents is so uh, opposite and, you know, contradictory to my values that there there needs to be people out there pushing for something different. Uh, So that's, that's what woke me back up and got me back into sort of activism and politics and policy.
0: Okay. And what everyone, there's a range of like how deep everyone cares about politics. I think it probably, it it must be at its low point (laughs) right right now. I mean, there's there's important social movements, but it feels like there hasn't, uh, even for myself, I can only speak for myself. I'm totally disinterested in what's going on in Washington. And a big part of that is because I feel that no matter what I do as an individual, unless I choose to run for office, it's not really going to make that much of a difference. And I'm, I don't, I'm not interested in running for office. So what I guess, um, what I'm interested in to hear from you is how is it that you like identifying with an anti-Trump, or I don't know how you want to phrase it, that that you would consider it, it. I I don't I don't feel like the president actually has that much power. I feel like they're a figurehead, and while Trump is like, yeah, I mean, the guy says crazy shit, right? Like he says crazy yeah. stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know, I don't even know what to believe right now about what's coming out because I and I don't I don't watch a ton of news because both sides are so polarizing that I find that it's just totally unhelpful. So I'm just curious like how you formed your views around that. Because my view is there's a level of consciousness that our society needs to hit that's higher than where it is today about like, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, when you're running for office and when you're in office, you need to manage society, which has people of all different value systems, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious mm-hmm. like what what your view is on, on that. I know that's a lot, but-
1: no, it, and you raise interesting. Points. I think most people are, are where you're at, right? Like, they are like, there's stuff going on. I don't really care. I got to, you know, work and do my own thing. And these guys are always yelling at each other. What does that mean? Right? I grew up in a household really was not, if not disinterested in, in politics, wasn't really engaged. In, in, to that extent, um, they, they kind of, they were Democrat, they voted Democrat, but they weren't like engaged. But And it's interesting, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And at a young age, I kind of saw that the people around me, they didn't really have much control over what was happening in their communities and whatever. And that's at the local level, right? Like, they just did it. And then I would, I, through school and everything else, I did this program called Junior Achievement. And I met uh, some rich people and politically engaged people. And it was kind of the polar opposite in the sense that they had very much interested when everything was going on. And they also seemed to have some sort of agency in it, right? Like they were they were acting in some way that was different. And when I went to law school, I met a guy, uh, Professor Connor, and he said something to me that I always screw up the numbers, but it was something like, uh, you know, 90% of the people have no idea what happens, right? Uh, there's another 5% uh, that knows what happens and, you know, understands it. And there's another five that makes it happen. And he's like, that's the world. And I didn't you know, that clicked for me because I felt like I was always in the 90% of things were happening to us. And we never understood why, you know, why is this bike lane here? Why is it not here? Why is this neighborhood this? And it was just sort of things were happening around us. So it was always very interesting to me. How do these decisions happen and affect these communities, uh, whether they be black, brown, poor? And we never seem to understand what the hell's going on. It just sort of happens one day. Uh, so I've always been interested in sort of that decision-making process and being a part of that. Now, what you're saying about Trump and like the president, I think for most Americans, the president, like the day-to-day, they probably don't have much um, decision-making power over you. But if it depends on who you are, right? Like if you are an immigrant, um, for instance, I work in, in an association. Uh, we a couple of weeks ago, Trump was saying, and he actually went through with this, was saying like, I'm going to stop student visas. So there were all these students at these different colleges, which were like, wait, do I have to go back home, right? And then there were people who were in in flight who got stuck places, and it was this, it was chaos. So they, they, the president makes these decisions that do affect certain classes of people. And sometimes it affects people in ways that they don't even fully realize just yet. So I I point to the pandemic. President Trump was first briefed about this thing in December. I didn't know anything about the coronavirus in December, you know what I mean? And in January and February, there were all these uh, sort of inactions. There was stuff that he was hearing stuff and he didn't do anything. And now we get to March where now we're on lockdown and everything else. So it's, it's one of those things where, and then now, you know, where the states should be working on a federal response to this, where no one state should be in a lockdown while another is not and the kind of coordination issues we're seeing, that's how the president can affect you day to day. Mm-hmm. And if it's, uh, happening the right way, you shouldn't feel it. It should be completely seamless, right? Like you just get on the road, a highway is there, you go and you go where you're going and whatever. But when it doesn't, when there's someone who it's not working, then we get into the situation where we're in, where it's like stay in your homes. Maybe you wear a mask. Maybe you don't. What state are you in? So we kind of have this kind of chaotic situation because we have this person who I don't think knows what they're doing. But then more so if they're if you are a person who is being targeted, the president can have a really big impact on you. So I look at I work a lot with the LGBT community, and you know, trans rights were kind of just starting to get more of them under the Obama years, and now under the president, you're seeing some of the rollback of that. So it just depends on who you are and you know what's important to you and everything else. But I agree with you. In the most part, the president shouldn't have that much impact on your day to day. But when he isn't doing his job, we see situations like this where it's sort of like. Well, it's it's up to everyone else to figure it out, the governor, your superintendent for your schools, everything else, because there's no federal government making these decision making. You could look at SARS, you could look at all these different things that never reached the United States because we had people who sort of uh, prevented it from happening. So um, it's, it's one of those things where even if you don't care about politics, the saying is politics cares about you. And they are, you know, there are people who are making decisions that are going to impact you in ways you don't even think about sometimes.
0: For sure, it, yeah, it feels like there's. I mean, it, it, this this whole scenario of the pandemic has totally exposed the weak points in America's own system and infrastructure, right? And that goes. I, I actually look at it as. I don't point the blame at any one person and I, you know, I, I'm not, I generally try not to blame people cause it's like, a, I feel like it, that's just wasted energy. And I, I totally respect what you're doing is like, you're going to go do something about it. Right. Like you're, you're, you're putting thoughts into action, into motion, which is an agent for change. I, I see a general leadership like void all throughout the American system that's, that's public schools, that's cities, that's counties, that's police. You know, there's, I I don't know that there's like a, a seamless way to respond to a global pandemic. Right. And I don't know Mm -hmm. what's actually true and what information was flowing around whenever it was flowing around. And like, I, I know the game of telephone is real and I'm curious what what your view is on like at the state level, like we're, you're running for state office, right? Lieutenant governor. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And how, how are you gonna try to fill that void in your state? I mean, it's that that's one level of action. I, I personally feel that that exists in every state right now. And our system was designed that way to not give the federal government too much power, but now we're relying on the federal government because we have a pandemic and it's causing major damage across every state. Yeah.
1: I mean, this gets into like the philosophical questions of what does government, what is it supposed to do? Right? Like, what is it? What is it really supposed to do? And it's supposed to handle these issues that we can't handle individually. Right? Like if you as a person, you know, you can throw out your garbage and take care of that. But if your neighbor isn't, you know, so that you have government that sort of says, look, this is what we all have to do collectively. It's collective action. Um, but I agree with you. Like sometimes I get into fights with people who they get into this, uh, they identify as conservative, they identify as whatever they do. And they're like, well, because you're talking about this person or about the president, uh, then what, what about your governor, the, the Democrat in Virginia? I was like, I don't like him either. I feel like, you know, we've been failed at all these levels. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not Democrat or Republican, uh, necessarily it's that everyone has sort of kicked the can and the pandemic is you know, obviously the front of mind, but it's a perfect example of this, right? You know, what happened at the federal government happened. Our governor then said, well, I'll let every school district decide and, and every superintendent has to make their own decision. So it, it becomes this thing where no one wants to lead because that's hard and you get blamed for stuff. Um, so then you, you push it down to the next level. And I think we've seen that uh, time and time again, but then no one wants to be an honest broker. And I think there've been some examples, like I, I felt like Cuomo did a good job of this, right? Saying there's a lot of things we don't know about this situation. There's some things we do and here's what we're going to do. And if this doesn't work, we'll, we'll change course. And so what I'm hoping to do, if I were to run is I want to be an honest broker. I want to be someone that says, look. This is a situation. This isn't. This is what we know, and this is what we don't know. Here's how it can sh- turn out, and this is the decision we should make. Now, by the time I, if I am elected, if I'm lucky enough to get elected, uh, we may be in a very different world. But it's really one of two worlds: there's a world with a vaccine, and it's world without a vaccine. Um, I hope we have a vaccine by then, because I can't imagine going through this situation for for much longer. But you know, either way. What this is exposed is that, you know, party loyalties, like, oh, this person is a Democrat, so I have to agree with everything they're saying. That's the problem. Like, we need someone who says, look, this is not working for us. Same thing on the Republican Party. And then you sort of, and I agree with you, we have this sort of needless bickering. We have the Twitter fights where people are like, oh, I I really dunked on them then. Yeah, we're still all wearing masks and sanitizing our groceries. So we're not in any better place because you dunked on the person, right? So I think there's this need to tell the truth, to, to be outspoken and, and, and just say, hey, you know, this is what we need to do as a society. This is how we bring up everyone. Um, but I think I wish I wish people were more involved in the political process, because I think that everyday person, you know, if you pick 10 people off the street, they would probably have a better sense of how to handle what's going on than our current leadership, because they don't have. Uh, The political considerations, they're not thinking about, oh, well, they didn't vote for my bill, so I'm not going to do this or whatever. They would would, would think of the problem at hand. Um, And being in this process, I see how much other noise there is in this, right? Like I have to raise money and I have to do this stuff to be this person who's viable as a candidate. But that doesn't really, if someone comes along and is able to raise more money than me and they become the candidate, it says nothing about whether or not they're suitable to lead. Right. And so that's part of the flaw in our system now is that there's so many other things besides your leadership qualities that determine whether or not you're in office. And we see that. We see that at every level. We have these rich guys who uh, now they're faced with an actual crisis and look at at where we're at. So um, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And I think it's completely valid because we're in a mess.
0: Yeah. And what how do you get people more engaged, especially like I, I, at the local level is where it matters. I think if people are engaged at the local level, you mm-hmm. will be, you will inherently become engaged at the federal level because the federal you'll, you'll understand how the federal impacts your local stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, that's tricky. So like I said, I, 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 I run a, uh, one of the largest nonprofits in Virginia. It's a completely unpaid job. It's volunteer, and it's all about who's passionate about being in the NAACP. It's a, a legacy organization, so we have some names or whatever. But when I took over as president a year ago, we had 200 paid members. Now we have 1,200. The way that we got people involved was through coalition building. Like if you have an issue, I look at it like this: if you have an issue uh, as an LGBTQ individual or as an Hispanic individual. Um, I'm going to be there for you, and you come and be there for me and my issues, and we'll work together. Um, and I also work with labor unions. Economic justice and racial justice are tied together, right? Like, they, they, they try to separate us based on race, but really, we are fighting a struggle, and it's getting people to see that. Like, we are all in this together. Um, but to get people more engaged in this stuff is, is helping them to understand how the – it's two things, I think. Helping them understand how it impacts them, what, what's in it for them. And then two is uh, demystifying the process, because I think a lot of times people are like, I don't know who controls this and what to do and like that sort of thing. And politicians, they take advantage of that because they're like, by the time they figure this out, they're going to be tired of it and moved on to the next thing. And I hate to be cynical, but I've seen that happen as an activist where they're like, I can wait this out and people will forget about it. But what we're seeing now in the pandemic, which is a really interesting dynamic, there are no distractions, you know, like you're stuck at your house, you have nothing else going on. And people are, you know, I think the George Floyd thing, seeing a police officer, we've seen plenty of video over the years. I think the difference here was the American public had nothing else to see but this. They were seeing someone, you know, just completely unjustifiably have their knee, you know, a knee jammed into their neck for yeah. nine minutes. Yeah, And so it's, if you're at home and there's nothing else for you to do, but see that and, and just let that marinate and say like, what is the difference? What does this mean if I as a human being see something like this and do nothing? What does it say about me? I think that, um, that is what has spurred a lot of people to act, you know, activate and do stuff in their community. Um, and what, what, I, what I did locally, we had a car rally here, and I said to people, I said, if you come to this car rally, and you go home, and you know, you say, oh man, I, you know, I did a protest, you would have done nothing, you would have failed, both us and the generations to come. You have to stay engaged in this fight. And people really thought that resonated because they were like, yeah, you're right. Like I, I've been, obviously been asleep to some of the things that have been going on around me, and you just got to tell them this is the way to get engaged. Join an organization that's constantly doing the work and you don't have to be in it with us the whole time. You just gotta know, hey, this is going on and I'm, I'm aware of it. Because there are people who are already doing the work that you can just say, hey, tell me when you need me and I'll come.
0: Sure, yeah, or donate money. Or, you know, there's, ma- there's many ways Whatever you can it help. Is. Yeah. yeah. What? Spe- speaking of keep- keeping people engaged, so how do you do that when at some point our country is gonna to return to some level yeah. of normalcy, uh, maybe, right? And how do you do that when people go back to the thing which has, which has been driving their lives, which is work, right? This is. I think we're at this point where, I agree with you, now is a, is a really critical time. And it's, how are you gonna keep people's awareness on some of these important issues as they go back to normal life and they and they have things to focus on?
1: You know, that is a question that I've been thinking about because at some point we do return back to normal, right? And what does that look like? But then at the same time, I also second guess that and I say, it's one of those things when you see something, you can't unsee it, right? Um, we have seen, even, it doesn't have to be big things. Like if you are at a job that wasn't remote before, and you have been working full time remotely. They're gonna have a really tough time to tell you, oh, you have to come in the office now and be shackled to your desk nine to five, because you're like, hey, dude, I was just doing that without the commute, saving a bunch of gas money. Why do I need to do this, right? Like that's gonna be a, a real challenge for people who are trying to get their people to come back in the office because they're like, I don't, I don't need to, right? Um, it's I think it's the same thing too with some of the some of the things we're seeing nationally and everything else is like. If you've been awoken to oh there is police brutality and you went to a protest and you saw more police brutality, I don't think you go back to your 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 nine to five and just kind of forget about that. I think there there something has been has fundamentally and my this is my sense of it something has fundamentally changed with our country and a lot of people. Um, we're seeing protests. We saw protests in all fifty states. You know in Montana where you know the black po- population is like zero point four percent. They're they're protesting for Black Lives Matter. They're doing so. Something has changed where we're like, this isn't normal or this isn't acceptable. Um, even if they get a vaccine, I think there are going to be people. I mean, it may not be everyone. You're never going to get everyone, but there's going to be a, a a mass of people who were never engaged before who are now in this and will remain in it. I think.
0: Okay. And what I mean, the police thing, I, I'm. I've trained jujitsu for about a year. I'm very very early in it, mm-hmm. um, but I've trained it enough to uh, to watch these videos and really feel the unnecessary use of force mm-hmm. in the majority of these videos. And it, I I can't process it from the standpoint of like, I I wasn't there. I don't I don't know what else in that situation was being experienced. But a lot of what I'm seeing on video it could easily be handled through proper jiu-jitsu training, right? Jiu-jitsu is a submission yep. sport. It gives you, a, I, I think Henry Gracie calls it, scalable levels of violence. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a clear path to better training of the of the police departments. And I just wanted to segue for a minute into this because I'm curious as you, to your views of, well, I know police police department reform is something that's high up on your list what mm-hmm. what is your plans for virginia
1: yeah so for virginia um it's it's a couple of different things uh that we're working on currently within the, in my role at the WCP. uh right now we uh, I, I and some people think of this and they're like you hate police i'm like no not really i don't really think about <laughs> the police in that say i'm not sitting here like oh man i really hate them how am i gonna stick it to them. It's more what we're doing with the police doesn't make sense and they're not trained to handle the stuff that we're asking them to handle. So right now we have police in schools in every school and they don't reduce school shootings. We just know that. Um, but they do lead to more arrests of black and brown kids uh, and also disabled kids, uh, which a lot of people don't talk about, but mm-hmm. the dis- disabled kids get arrested by police a lot. Um,
0: For what? And I then, mean, is there like a well, theme there?
1: Well, yeah so sometimes it could be autism and so the police say why aren't you following my orders and they're not really understanding their orders uh it could be you know behavioral issues that they just rather than saying the police aren't equipped to deal they're not teachers they're not counselors so they don't know how to deal with these kids so they just arrest them and that's what ends up happening and we see it the you know government accountability office did a big study about it and we see it uh here in fairfax county they were us like restraining and secluding, putting them in rooms by themselves, like restrained uh, to deal with them rather than like dealing with them how they probably need it to be because they don't know, they don't have the skills to do that. So a lot of times we're asking police to do everything. And we're like, you can be a counselor, you'd be a social worker, we do this. And it's, we need to invest in the actual jobs that we need. Like we need more counselors in schools, So we need all of those things. So that's part of it, kind of diverting those funds to counseling and the items that we need. Another part of it is changing the way that we look at policing that where we have accountability. You know, the big conversation we're having nationally and we're having in Virginia as well is qualified immunity. You know, a police officer, you can't sue them. Even if they do something completely egregious and, you know, violates their policy, they have this qualified immunity where they just cannot be sued. So it's, um, that's, I think it would change behavior. You know, you've done business before. You have incentives of, oh, I might get sued if I do this. You may not do that thing, right? You may look at the way you go about it differently. So, I mean, those are some of the things that that we are looking at. But to the deeper part of your question of, you know, there are ways that you could subdue people without killing them. We know that. And it happens. It just doesn't happen that often for black people. And so I think we do have to deal with the issue of bias in policing because we see it time and time again with the demographics here in Virginia, uh, in Fairfax County where I'm at, Black people make up nine percent of uh, our population, but when we look at use of force cases, they're fifty percent of those. So um, they have plenty of interactions with white people that don't end in violence, and they have the same interactions with black people, and for some reason they they have a uh, they're they use force. So I think we need to. Figure that part out, and figure out how do we get them uh, in situations where they're not dealing with something they're not equipped to deal with, and and that's that's a challenge. So some of the stuff that we're dealing it with is demilitarizing the police, having a database that tracks pol like tracks a policy violations. So you know if you you get fired one place, you don't get to move to the next county, and get hired as a cop all over again, um, and then ending qualified immunity. So if you do something that's completely outside the scope of your job, you can be sued for it. And I don't think this is controversial because or shouldn't be controversial. Some people look at it as an attack on police. I'm a lawyer. If I were, you know, handling a case and completely screwed it up, I get sued for malpractice. The same thing for a doctor or any other profession. So if you're a, a cop who kicks in the wrong door and shoots someone, how is that acceptable? Right. Like, how is it not in our society that 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 person who was shot or their family can't sue you for that behavior and if we allowed that um i think we would see fewer incidents of that we would see cops acting differently and being more careful with how they uh interact with the public
0: yeah that's interesting i the database thing makes total sense to me in like um it's 2020 we have the internet is everywhere how do yeah. we not how do we not have databases to track people's performance right i mean that that seems well, crazy. that's the thing
1: they they will do something in one place and then move to the other and become a cop again. And that's what the data is. It's, it's, it's mind boggling because you hear about it and you're like, how the hell does that happen? But it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It it seems to me that another component that would be helpful is having people from the actual communities be responsible for the police department. And that means that you need people to step up from the community and say, I want to, I want to be a police officer in this, where I'm from,
1: right. Where you, where Mm -hmm. you
0: actually have some tie in. And I, the only example that I have from this is is New York because I spent the last 15 years there. Policing New York is, I mean, that's a different animal in general. It's Mm -hmm. chaos. And guys that even guys that live in the city, they're generally policing areas that they don't go to. And I, I think that becomes a problem when there's issues in the community and you don't have anyone that's even part of the community involved that to me seems really important it's just like you have to have some level of fabric that ties everyone together it doesn't it doesn't mean that things aren't going to come up it doesn't mean that there's not going to be issues you need to invest in those people to help police each area i don't know if that makes sense
1: no, and, and what, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, you're trying to build trust, right? And the way we've been dealing with it here is with our civilian, we're trying to get civilian review panels, right? Because right now, if there's a, a complaint against the police, it's investigated by the police. So it's, you know, when we deal with the homeless population, and they say, hey, this you know, cop harassed me, if you tell them that, hey, well, you can file a complaint, and they say, with who? It, it, they have to go to the cops, they're not going to do that, right? So, we need to have community involvement and police are really uh, resistant to any sort of oversight like that. So, you know, any sort of government, we need to have accountability. It's just whether you're a cop, whether you're, you know, the clerk down at the, the county's uh, courthouse, whatever, you need oversight. So um, and want I think when you frame it in those terms, people understand it. But we get into these stupid partisan divides of back the blue, you know, it's like, they're just they're government workers like anyone else, and if there's an issue there, we need to address it. It's not about being anti-police. It's about being anti you know violence, being anti corruption, being anti you know doing a, a terrible job. You know, so we want people who are doing the job properly, and um, uh, everyone wants to feel safe. We we often talk about policing, but really the real issue we're, we're dealing with is public safety, and sometimes that's police. Sometimes that's counselors. If you have a mental health issue, it it just really depends. And we need to broaden how we think about public safety and what makes people safe.
0: Yeah, no, I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm a big fan of teaching kids detailed self defense in public schools, whether that's you, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can pick whatever sport or self defense system you want, or some combination. I'm, I'm a, believer in Gracie Jitsu first and foremost, because I, th- yeah. I think, I think it's a, it's an effective tool system. And I've watched my son, my son's actually been training longer than I have. I've watched my son develop a very base set of skills and confidence in close combat scenarios. Right. And he's a, he's the mm-hmm. sweetest human being, right? He doesn't want to hurt anybody, but he has a level of confidence in a physical altercation that I've, I've never witness that because I wasn't around martial arts when I was a kid. And so I think, I think there's even more innovative things that can be done, starting with people, right? Of like, how, how can we diffuse the situation?
1: Well, I think, you know, jujitsu martial arts makes people, it's weird. I, I, I talk about it sometimes. I love watching MMA and all that stuff, but it's like, those people usually aren't the bullies because they have this sort of confidence about them. They're not looking for a problem. They already, you're not insecure. You're not trying to like exert yourself on someone because you know, oh, I can handle myself. And so there is a discipline to that. That's admirable. And I think we should teach more kids that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I wanted to go back. I, I like what you said. Uh, and I think you're right. I've witnessed it. It, I had the fortunate opportunity to train at Henzo Gracie Academy in New York city. Oh, wow. Shout out yeah. to Henzo Gracie. Cause that place is filled with savages. Um, yeah, and it's some of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And it was I was in there with cops, construction workers, professional fighters. I mean, they're the the Gracies are teaching the classes, right? And it's I've in a year of intense training there. The community was what stood out the most. It's actually what I'm missing mm-hmm. most about New York life right now. Um, and I, I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier about transparency, because I think this all ties in to Mm. a system of transparency. That's kind of, that's what you were talking about when it comes to the police. It's like, we need a a transparent way to track performance. We need a transparent way to track issues in the community. How, it, it sounds easy because we have access to the internet. I, something tells me it's way more complicated than that. And then you layer in the component of keeping people engaged when they just want to pick up their phone and like something and flip through 50 photos and then sure, spend yeah. an hour on mm-hmm. their phone. So how how do you how do you envision transparency in the future of governing cities communities?
1: Yeah, I I think um, well just to back up a step. So when you when you talk about tracking performance for police. It also is, well, what's a good performance, right? If you make the performance all about arrest, then the guy's just going to go out and arrest everybody he sees, right? Because that's what incentive is. So you always have to make the incentive of what is best for the community, right? So how do I incentivize that? Maybe it's, well, how many complaints do you get from civilians? Like the fewer you get, the, that's the higher you are. Uh, you don't want. I don't think you want to make it arrest and ticketing because it's just going to make them a nuisance to people. Like, oh, I'm just going to get everybody I can't. And that's not really what we're looking to do. It should be some tie to keeping crime low, not having a lot of complaints. You know, that should be what policing is about. Uh, It shouldn't be about, I'm going to try to arrest everyone under the sun. Uh, But as far as transparency in government, I mean, uh, going to what you were saying, uh, we are in, you know, a technological age where we're all working virtually. You know, we are on different sides of the country, able to talk to each other seamlessly, right? So we can track... Uh, we, what, what this doesn't require citizens to be involved every day. They shouldn't be on their you know phone. Like and no one would want to, to check it, whatever, but it should be able to say if there is an incident with a cop that I can look up his record. Like if a cop, I feel like I was stopped by a cop and I can look up his record, or I was treated unfairly, I can look up his record. And if we see patterns, we're able to address them. So I think it's, uh, not only, not only between departments, but everyday citizens should have. That accountability or that um ability to say i'm gonna look and see like you know is this right or is this on the up and up and and see that and i think it should be a publicly available database and it should you could have a 50 state one but it and you should be able to go in and say okay i'm in virginia here's this who's here's the officer stop me what's his record like um and i, I don't see what's what's the issue with that uh, right now like i made the com- comparison to uh the bar I'm licensed in Texas. You can look up Sean Perryman under the Texas bar and see if I have any complaints against me, so uh, it would be a very similar thing, and I don't see why we wouldn't do that, especially for something as serious as we're giving this guy a gun, saying you have the authority of law to you know shoot someone, arrest someone, everything else. Why wouldn't we have that kind of accountability there?
0: Yeah, I mean that makes uh, I never really thought about it in the context of the, the standard that lawyers are held to, which is very high, mm-hmm. extremely mm-hmm. high. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's probably a lot more lawyers in this country than there are police officers. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I think I would think implementing that is yeah. It, uh, all of this stuff is going to be a major undertaking at the onset because you're talking about big changes in philosophy of how we govern, right? if, if that makes well, sense.
1: You, well, you know, the origins of policing, right? In the South.
0: Uh, I I actually don't I, do, I don't.
1: The police in most southern states started out as the slave patrol. They were the people who picked up you know picked up slaves and, and everything else, and then Jim Crow that just morphed into the modern day police. So I, I tell people that because um, there's a guy named Brian Stevenson that they had that movie Just Mercy about him. Uh, it was on HBO and movies, theaters and everything else. But uh, he said something so profound to me. He was saying. Uh, He was talking about the death penalty, and he was saying, you know, uh, if in modern day Germany, uh, they had this kind of disproportionate uh, use of the death penalty on Jewish people, we'd be like, you know, what the hell? The Germans are still killing Jewish people. In modern day America, we have this history of slavery, of lynchings and everything else. If we look at the death penalty, it's mostly black people. If we look at the number of arrests, black people. If we look at... So you have these systems that were originated in discrimination and, you know, have this long checkered history of, you know, arresting black people for questionable things. And it's still happening today. And then we're saying, well, maybe that's just a coincidence or whatever. I think we have to look at we have these systems that were that were based in racism and they are still li- leading up to racist racist outcomes. So we have to examine like, is this, is this a a remnants of that origin? Is this the system not being broken, but operating as it it intended to be? Um, And we see it with cannabis. We see it with uh, various different drugs, you know, and, um, you know, the way that crack and cocaine were treated in New York City, crack was considered a black drug and you got a much harsher penalty than you did for cocaine. And so we see these sort of racist origins for these laws and policies, and even the way that police execute discretion and they still exist. And we're, we, I think are reluctant to tackle, well, what is the basis of that? Why is this still happening in the same way?
0: Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think for some reason, people are just so resistant to change. And that is in in the age where information is available immediately. That information may or may not be accurate, but it's available. It's out there. It feels like we should be more open to some of the change. And I understand like the U.S. government is a it's the largest philosophical tanker ship in the universe, right? In, Mm -hmm. in In the human universe. You can't go through and make a bunch of changes overnight, you have to start kind of incrementally chipping away at it and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And I, it, I haven't thought about everything that, that you're talking about in the context that you're talking about it. Although I see that there has to be some important big shifts in police philosophy, like the philosophy behind policing and I actually felt it when I was a kid. I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. I had had a lot of un unproductive energy, and I you know my yeah. father wasn't present when when I was a kid. My mom was working a lot, so I had numerous run-ins with police officers, and almost none of them were positive. Right. I right. I still respect the police today from the standpoint that all these all these people are humans. They're, they're trying to do their job. They're trained in a frame of the world that may not be the best frame of giving them unfettered power and just letting them sort of unilaterally govern in their position until something goes horrendously wrong. That that seems like a terrible way to train people to police. Um, and I think peeling back the layers and starting to peel back, I, I actually think it's a good thing. At, at first when all the news started coming out, I was like, defund the police. This is crazy. You can't, you can't do this. And I still believe that. But what I'm seeing more and more is there's a, we we need to rewrite the entire code of ethics for modern times for almost for our entire society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. know what, what your view is on that. You know, you know,
1: I, I, I always get asked about the defund the police movement and all that. I, I never criticize anyone's activism because I think it, it does have a place of like spurring conversation and like doing that whole thing. But I never, I never really use the term myself. I use reimagine public safety because I think it gets to what you're saying. We're in a modern day where we're not in the 80s crack era. We've seen a, a drop in crime since the 90s and it's kind of persisted um, with some exceptions here and there, but mostly the crime that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s has really uh, gone down. Right. But we are still we are still uh, policing in the same way. We're still looking at these things like people think, oh, uh, and I, this is where the defund movement makes sense in the sense of people think, oh, um, if I want to be more safe, I'm going to add more police and I'm going to keep giving them money. Right. But then, when you look into these, when you lift the hood and look into where these budgets are going, you got a—you know—here in Fairfax, we got a $200 million police uh, police uh, department, and in New York, it's a couple billion dollar. And then you look at they're buying helicopters and tanks and all this stuff, and then you're saying, "Well, wait a second—is this really serving?" And then you look at the school systems that we're not funding. So when you talk about defunding, um, It's almost like we need to reinvest in other things. We need to divert some of these funds because what we're doing is we're building this police state where they have tear gas and tanks and all this endless stuff. And who knows if we're any safer for it at at that, right? Justin, like, you know, uh, they can stop uh, protests or riot, but how often did that happen before this was going on, right? So would we be better served if we had more teachers or we paid our teachers more or if we had more equipment in our schools? We have parts of Virginia that can't connect to the internet. That's crazy. Right? That's so insane. you know, you know what I'm saying that the rural parts of Virginia that have the worst internet access you can imagine and you're in a pandemic where everything is virtual, but you're going to keep funding the police at outrageous levels. So I do get where that comes from, but it's all about reimagining things to make it serve all of us better.
0: How how much do you think the current sort of funding structure of the police is tied to like a nine eleven type event, not not in a conspiracy yeah. theory way, but in the
1: no no I in this you. fear, I do think it's a lot of it's fear. I think it's um, it even goes before nine eleven. So I think some of it's tied to a nine eleven. Oh, you know we're we're prepared for a terrorist attack, and then some of it's tied to uh, sort of eighties early nineties tough on crime. Oh, the crack epidemic, so we're gonna go fight gangs and stop crack and and all that. By the way, I don't know if that worked, you know, but they the, the, the model was we're going to have as much police as possible and all that. And, um, you know, I've talked about this. I grew up uh, in my high school years in New York and lived in Brooklyn where we had stop and frisk, right? Something like nine out of the ten people, they stopped and frisked, didn't have anything on them, right? So you had this program where police were constantly just grabbing young black men, up, for the most part, young black men up and, and, and searching them. That's not the United States that we talk about when we talk about the land of the free, right? That's not every day. Can you imagine police coming through your neighborhood and just searching you? So we allow that in certain neighborhoods. We allow these sort of things to happen. And we have this model where we think that that works. But then when we look at it, you know, only one in 10. Is it really worth the liberty that we traded for that? Um, and so um, I got far afield, but to answer your question, I think we're basing our policing model off of worst case scenario, 9-11 and sort of this outdated, uh, tough on crime. I'm going to stop all the drug dealers model from the early nineties, late eighties.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. It, your point reminds me of, I I just watched, um, the last Narco on, I think it was on Amazon Mm -hmm. prime. It's a three part series about a, a dea agent uh-huh. named kiki camarena who which is net, netflix netflix's oh yeah they... narcos mexico was based on him going to mexico and the yeah. he got he was tortured and murdered it was horrendous Yeah, this i think it's a three or four part series it was fascinating because it plays into what you were talking about in the context of the cia was funneling drug money into the United States that without knowledge of the DEA. And according to this documentary, like everyone at the DEA in Mexico was on the take, right? And I mean, it just, it was very eye-opening in the context of like big government and some of these policies that exist that are like, well, the CIA is doing it to protect, they're immune from the laws Mm -hmm. of the United States because they're not a law enforcement agency. And, I, you yeah. know, the CIA is probably going to listen to this now that I said it. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully We're not. both in trouble now. Yeah. I, I'm in my garage. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's nothing crazy going on here. Um, but that, that was just it, what you were saying reminds me of that, where we haven't, I, I, don't, I don't think as a society, we've taken a step back and thought about, did any of those policies actually work? what what worked what didn't work right what should be updated for 2020 and i and i think what you were saying about the school system i mean just reimagining reinvesting in other areas makes mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense um so you know
1: we imprison more people in the united states than anywhere else in the world right like our 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 solution to everything is throw throw you in jail. You know, you break anything, you do anything wrong, you go in jail. Uh, if we look at other countries, they they don't arrest people at nearly the race that we do. But the way they deal with drugs is completely different. You know, um, they they look at it as a public health issue. Now, when uh, the opioid crisis was happening, that's when we saw states start to look at these things as public health issues. They you know, police would carry Narcon and and their, and their uh, Cop car, the the way that we did it was a lot more empathetic and kinder and gentler than people, and you can get into whether that was a race issue as well. But we go, we think that if we lock up all the drug dealers, uh, that will solve our problem. But there'll be a new drug dealer because it's a supply. As long as there's demand, there's going to be a supply. Um, so what we really need to do is, I think you know, we need to start thinking about what what are other countries doing in in this, in this regard. Not everyone needs to be treated like imprisoned and everything else. I think we need to invest in other things like getting people off of drugs or helping them as they, they get weaned off the drugs and everything else. But we can't just keep arresting folks. We have more people in jail than anywhere else. And so it's this, it's, it's what we're talking about. Changing the philosophy of how we see people, looking at them as human beings, right? You know, like you you said that you got in a lot of trouble when you were younger on. If you had someone who just looked at you like, hey, this is this kid, maybe something's going on with this kid. I could invest in him in some other way rather than, you know, whatever, like punishing them in some way. Um, that would go a lot further. And I don't know how, you know, I don't want to sit here and pretend I have all the answers. It's just, but there needs to be some sort of paradigm shift. I know that I may not have all the answers, but I know it's wrong that we are arresting more people than any other country in the world. And I know it's wrong that, you know, we're trying to just lock our way up out of a drug problem that there has to be some other way.
0: Yeah. And I think it, some of your, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, the, the structure in Virginia was pretty shocking to me in that number one, and this, this exists across the country. There's states where cannabis is legal, but there's still people doing time for cannabis related offenses, which is just mind boggling to me. I mean, that makes no sense. And then on top of that, you mentioned there was no, uh, there's no parole in Virginia, right? Yeah. How how did that, how does that even exist today?
1: So our current uh, US Attorney General, uh, Bill Barr, he comes from Virginia. And during the tough on time, the t- tough on crime 90s, that was, you know, that was a sexy way. Like, not only am I going to lock them up, I'm going to make sure there's no parole. And then so you're, you end up with this system where, and it gets back to the, our, the beginning of our conversation, right? The politicians aren't about serving people. They are about getting elected. And if that, if that's something that's viewed as, oh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, who, it becomes a conversation, who can be the toughest on crime? And, and and then that's what we saw in the 90s where you got rid of parole and we just never have been able to uh, reinstate it in that way and you know, these kind of mandatory minimums and everything else. So I think part of that problem is that uh, you have this kind of political class and they're not basing policy on any sort of data. They're just doing it to, I'm going to get votes, I'm going to be the most outrageous, I'm going to say the most right-wing or left-wing thing. Uh, that's an issue. And then you also have Uh, a class of politicians who, um, they don't, I want to say they don't see, they don't see people as their constituents, but it's deeper than that. They come from this, this sort of thing where, uh, they've never had an issue, right? Like they come from, you know, the, the, the background where they may have money or anything else, or they just never really saw themselves as having that sort of problem. So everyone is sort of otherized and, you know, if you get in this sort of issue, that's your problem, something's wrong with you and whatever. There are plenty of Americans who struggle with drug addiction. There are plenty of Americans who just use drugs, who have no addiction. Um, it doesn't make you a bad person or a good person. It, it's not about that. It's, it's that's you know, that's, uh, that's a, a really um, reductionist way of thinking of things. And we need people who can see the humanity in other people and who empathize with others and will craft laws in in a way that reflects that.
0: Yeah. It's uh, you bring a a very enlightened philosophy to the politics game. I'm curious, I'm curious what's going to happen throughout this, this political race, because uh, I think you're, you're going to bump up against some of the realities of the system, which are, you know, ultimately, those are just tests of your character, in, in my mm-hmm. view, and that exists in anything that exists in the corporate world, as I'm sure you've experienced working in commercial law mm-hmm. firms and, and litigation. Um, what I guess, in terms of how you decided to focus on what you're focusing on, can, can you share that in, in a philosophical term? Because everything you're saying is like it, you seem to be saying. I'm going to look at what's the right thing to do, right? From a human perspective, right? There is all these issues. There's race issues, there's gender issues, there's education issues, there's financial issues, there's policing issues. How do you keep that momentum once you actually get elected and then you're in the middle of the system that is not really designed to allow you to do all those things at once? Um, you know, what? How do you decide what to focus on?
1: I mean, that's, that's the, t- that's the, the tough question of how do you be pragmatic and still be successful? Right. And like, and, and, and still live true to your values. I, when I entered this race, I said to myself, there's no way I can lose. And I don't mean that in the cocky way of, oh, I'm going to become the next Lieutenant governor and through everyone else. I mean that in the sense of, if it's not about me if it's about the values and the issues that I want to push forward, and I'm able to successfully push those forward. If I'm able to change the conversation where people are having conversations that they normally would not have had in a a typical political race, then I've won. Uh, And I have to keep that in mind that it's if I'm able to do that and help get some, you know, incremental way forward, for the issues I care about, then that has to be a win for me. But at, at the moment that I uh, succumb to, oh, well, I just need to be elected official for the rest of my life, and I'm going to say and do anything to do that, then then I would have lost in some way, right? So I have to be willing to be in this race and stand for values that may be unpopular, that uh, you know, at some point, there may be some time in my career where someone says, you know what, I'm going to fund your candidate because you did X. And if X is the right thing, then I have to stick by it. And that means losing a seat or if that means losing this race, then I have to accept that. But I will know that I at least put those values forward. So that's, I think that's the, in my mind, I've had to come to grips with, I cannot get so caught up in winning at any cost because winning at any cost just means I've won this seat but it does not mean that the uh, issues that I care about necessarily are being served or I'm doing those.
0: Yeah. That's uh, I, I admire that. It's, I, I think it's a tall order. I, I think it can be done for sure. I think it needs to be done. And I think it will test your resolve in in, in a number of ways, right? It's I, I, which I'm sure you're probably experiencing every day. I mean, what, what has it been like, to literally start from scratch I mean you, you don't have a political background you're running for yeah. lieutenant governor which is a is a very high seat in the state although mm-hmm. probably not as glamorous as what most people think um, yeah. and and you're willing to do that and so I'm curious as to what you know what is your what does your infrastructure look like how do you even get set up to do something like this
1: sure. So, you know, actually, the current lieutenant governor who is going to be leaving that seat, uh, he was never elected before, uh, and there's been a history of that. So the seat, you know, I'm not doing something unprecedented. I think it can be done, and I think I have a good chance of doing it. But as far as what the infrastructure looks like, it's it's a really interesting thing. Uh, talked to you know other politicians, and they the way they kind of talk about it is that there's the the, the donor primary, the money primary, and then there's the the primary for votes, right? And the way it looks now is getting my name out there saying, Hey, I'm thinking about this. I want you to consider me. Um, It's not really hiring a lot of staff because you don't have the money to do that yet. Right. So you're getting volunteers. Um, And then it's calling people and asking for money. Honestly, Justin, like it's like we build in 20 to 30 hours of call time a week where I just get on the phones and I call people I know and I call people I don't know. And I say either I'm having conversations about them with, what are the policies that are important to them, or I'm just asking them for money. Because at this point, uh, the money is how you get your voice out there to get your message out there. So the message is important, but if no one hears it, you know, you're just a guy screaming in the woods, right? So that's how, that's how, I, how I do it. So a lot of my time during this period is just calling for money. Um, and it goes back to what we said, like, does that really serve, does that show that I can lead? I think the stuff I've done before shows I can lead, but this is how, this is the process I have to go go through to make this happen. Um, And it's humbling in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I'm a grown man. I don't wanna call people and ask for money. But, uh, and I've never had to do that before, but I have to put my ego, my pride aside and say, I care about this issue and I, I care about the outcome of this. And I think I can do so much to help people so I have to keep that in mind as I go through that. And then even on a day-to-day basis, I think about the volunteers that I, I have, and you know they're helping me out tremendously. They're putting all these hours of work in because they believe in that too. And I want to be able to pay them. I want to say, hey, here's the money for your trouble. So um, this is this is sort of the, uh, the the thing that I'm going through on a day-to-day basis of trying to, uh, get that interest, get my name out there and let people know I'm doing it. And it's only going to ramp up after November, after the presidential election. It's going to be crazy because the only elections in 2021 are in Virginia and New Jersey. So, uh, but yeah, it's just raising money and and doing that. And and in COVID times is even more difficult because you're not able to see a person face to face and get a sense of who you are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine that that extra layer of not being able to have a public rally, not being able to go into community events and not being able to go knock door to door even is I'm sure a a major, major challenge
1: is a huge challenge. Yeah. Everything is on zoom for the most part. I I mean, I'll try to do stuff if it's safe enough at some point, but, um, I also don't want to be the guy who has a public rally and then a bunch of people get sick. Right. (laughs) Right. You don't want to be that even. Right. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And what, um. I mean, in a lot of ways, what you're describing is basically setting up a business at the onset, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's the the sort of cost of entry is your time to go raise the capital that you need to even start the race.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's ultimately, this is going to be a statewide operation where I'm going to have volunteers and people I hire throughout the state. I'm going to be, you know, running ads, I'm going to be doing that. So it is, it's very much like starting a business. You're like, and you're starting it from zero. You're just, and it. the interesting thing is you're starting a business and you're the brand, so you're both the brand and the business and you're trying to do it. And so there's a million different things that you're thinking about as you do that. Um, and and to go back to what we talked about, remaining true to that message while also trying to make it palatable to as many people as will accept it. Right. So um, it's, it's a lot to consider and do, but I think it's a, a fascinating challenge and it's something ultimately, if, I, if I'm able to do it, I'm hoping that it translates to doing some good and, and moving things in the direction that I would like to see them go.
0: Yeah, no, I, look, I, I can't say how much I respect what you're doing because I think it's, it, it's admirable. You're in the community, you've been involved in your community, um, and you're stepping it up in a, in a really challenging time. And it, I think there's more, there's more people out there that can make that decision, right? If, mm-hmm. if they choose to, right?
1: Yeah. Um, and I mean, and I, sorry to cut you it's off, but it, I, I don't know why this came to my mind, but there was a situation with a young lady. Uh, She was arrested for something because I think she failed to appear to court. and It was something minor. Uh, And a deputy sexually assaulted her while she was like being transported from jail to jail. They arrested a deputy, uh, but then she remained in jail after being sexually assaulted. So I had to work with this other NAACP chapter in another uh, county to get her out. And we got her out and she was so grateful obviously and like you know we try to get her this is at the height of when the pandemic just started so we were trying to get her like she had gotten evicted because she was arrested and hadn't been paying her rent and so we had to find her place to live and all that stuff but there are so many people like that that get caught up in the system that don't have means and everything else and like to think that you know i could be doing my day-to-day job but i will never have that sort of impact on someone's life in my day-to-day job i just won't so this is when I when I talk to people about getting involved in their community, you just don't know who you're going to help, and that's a sm- like a, a like a small scale you know one person thing. But I think as people get more and more involved in the things you do and you change these policies, like the big changes you want to make, the people will never know who you are, right? Like the, if you make a change good enough, they avoided some problem that they never knew that they would have had. And so you don't do it really to get thanked or anything like that. You just do it because. You're helping people out in a way that you think it's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I can resonate with that a lot. And that, that was a big component of this podcast is mm-hmm. you never know what message is going to resonate with someone. And we have the opportunity just through normal conversation, not pre-framed like media spam just normal conversation. Like you never know. And that's why I'm interested in not putting structure around it in terms of we're only going to focus on this. It's, I think there's too much. We're only going to focus on this one thing and not enough. This is life. And this is the experience that we're all having. And you, this conversation may inspire someone 10 years from now to run for office or to get more involved in their community or, to help someone out or, you know, whatever it is, you just, you just don't know. And I, I think that's the power that we all have as individuals today is that you can choose that format because of the distribution that you have. You have to go build it. You have to, you have to go create it. Um, but I think if you, you do it from your heart in the right place, it it will come because there's, yeah. there's not enough of it in the world today. Yeah, I um, think that's right. I wanted to switch gears because there was one other thing that I wanted, one other big ticket thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about, uh, which is affordable housing. And it's something that I've thought about a lot as, you know, a big chunk of my career has been in the commercial real estate business and investing sure. and building stuff. And I'm, I, I feel like it's, it is one of the root causes of some of the major economic challenges in our country and i'm curious i i know from just our conversation a few weeks ago it's something you're interested in i don't know the particular situation in virginia but i'd be curious i'm always interested in understanding more about it state by state because i also think that that's a community level thing and Mm -hmm. um I, i would just be curious as to to what your view is on on the affordable housing system yeah yeah so i
1: mean in in where i live in fairfax county uh like i said most populous but northern virginia is really the area right so it's fairfax arlington prince william uh housing costs are always going up amazon just moved in which also uh uh will, will raise prices we're right near dc D. uh it's just a it's a good place to live good school system so the the prices go up We have this thing called a half-penny fund, where they put half a penny of taxes uh, for every dollar towards affordable housing, Um, and we're always trying to get that expanded because it's not keeping up with what we need, what the needs are. But honestly, during this time, um, we haven't even been able to focus on affordable housing because we're dealing with the eviction crisis. Now, this, this more so than anything else pisses me off. Because we asked people to stay home. We said, you know, at the beginning of this, at least in our lockdown, stay home, don't go to work, don't do anything, just stay there. For most people, they don't have, they're not just sitting on money, right? They have to work to live. And then when we open back up, you know, some jobs opened up, some didn't, some were gone forever, you know. Uh, we, you, we have like something like 50 million people unemployed in the US. You know, it's crazy. But immediately after we opened up, people started talking about like evicting people because they weren't paying their rent, but it it, it becomes this thing of, well, how are you going to stop them from working and then uh, throw them out of their houses immediately? You didn't give them any sort of, what were they supposed to do? It wasn't like they stopped working because they were lazy or just didn't want to, like they were under a government mandate not to work. And so now we're dealing with this eviction crisis where um, we're fighting all the time to extend the eviction moratorium to stop the evictions and come up with some plan to get people on track to pay. And that, I mean, look, I, I, uh, I grew up in a family where um, my grandfather, he bought a house because he, you know, working class guy, bought a four family house. So he was a landlord. So I know there are landlords who are working class people, too, who need to get the money in. But we need to do something for both. Right. We need a, a mortgage freeze or, or rent freeze or something. Because what we're having now is essentially you told a bunch of people not to work, they listened, and now you're throwing them out of their houses. So that's been a huge issue for us. Like, what are we going to do about this situation where we are able to get people to be, because here's the other thing, if those people are homeless or on the streets or wherever, this pandemic's only going to get worse. For sure. So, yeah. So it's, it's this terrible situation that's, you know, usually with affordable housing, we're trying to increase the fund, we're trying to get more people, we're trying to get them to build more units for affordable housing and place those in different locations. But now it's just a a, a sort of a necessity thing of please don't throw them on the streets. Um, And uh, our governor has extended the moratorium to September 7th, but it's it's sort of unrealistic. This thing is not going to be done in September, it's not going to be done in October. This is something that we need to come up with a long term plan but it's that failure of leadership, again, where we're kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road. Um, and, you yeah, know, it's, it's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, it seems there's some sort of disconnection with the reality of the situation that we have at hand, right? And I, I hadn't really thought too much about the immediacy of it. We don't, I don't own any residential anymore. And so yeah. it's, all of our stuff is commercial properties, and we own limited stuff at this point. I the marketplace in general is a private market. The commercial real estate is generally a private market. There is publicly traded companies. Sure. All, all those contracts are privately negotiated. There are different structures, different forms, different leases, different laws in different states and counties, all that stuff. Sure. And I think this is going to be a major issue for our country across the board. Because lender, I can tell you right now, commercial lenders, most of them are saying defer, not not forgive, defer. That means you have to pay it back. There's no deferment of your income that you lost, right? It's not coming back in. Right. And most people yeah. weren't in a position to last for six months without income in general, right? And that's, I mean, that's a long time to, to last, period, when you don't have any income coming in
1: yeah exactly But i mean here's the thing in other countries in canada and everywhere else around us uh when they saw what this thing was at the beginning most governments said okay we're going to give you two three thousand dollars something like that for the duration of this thing like however long this lasts that you can't work we're going to pay you and give you some sort of thing now the u.s government can do that they could have done that they have the money to do that but they didn't So now we're in this sort of situation where, well, like you said, you can't defer your income. That money is never going to come. We're in this kind of untenable situation where nobody's going to be made whole or somebody's going to lose, right? Um, Unless the government comes up with some sort of program where they pay for some kind of rental assistance or something like that. But um, I really feel for the people who are in this situation because, again, this is not their fault. They didn't say, oh, I'm not going to work this month. Work was shut down. So what do we do there? I don't, I, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the sort of failure of leadership at the beginning has led to these problems at the end that everyone's going to have to sort out and fix.
0: Sure. Yeah. I'm. Uh, look, I'm a believer with the with any level of creativity, you can always come up with an infinite number of solutions. I think um, some sort of tax program for landlords could potentially help alleviate the problem where if you give the landlords like a tax credit at the end of the year that that could help something along those lines or real estate tax abatements obviously that has to be dealt with in the context of a larger budget with a city or a county but i i'm hopeful that governments around the country will will start to solve this and start to look around and see what what other countries are doing
1: it's yeah. um and
0: i i just want to get a sense of I understand that you have the immediacy of that. Looking at, let's say you get elected, when you get elected, how, however you want to look at it, uh, mm-hmm. what what is the view on increasing affordable housing going forward? Because I, I, again, I think it's a, it's one of the root cause issues along with education around poverty in America, and I think the concept of it in general is like here, let's take a bunch of poor people and put them around only a bunch of other poor people and give them the bare bones minimum because affordable housing is not nice for anybody who has not seen it for the most part. There are some nice ones, but by and large, it's bare bones living. And Mm -hmm. I I think the entire system, the way it's set up from a capital markets perspective is that the developers can make money just by building. The, the, The incentive structure is not a traditional market structure. It's the developers make money by the time the building is finished. So it's it, normally you would look to the income in the future to earn your return as an investor. And I, even as an investor, I'm like, there's something wrong with this. You can't, <laughs> that doesn't sound si- that, that doesn't seem right for the cause that it's trying to right. help alleviate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, um, we definitely need more affordable housing, especially in, in but we here's the thing too it's, it's a zoning issue too we need affordable housing in areas where good schools are and that's where it gets tricky because people don't want oh, that you have a bunch of you know not in my backyard type people uh, but that's the only way and that's the way that you're going to lift those families out of pop um, so I, I i think that there there's a need to rethink how we think about affordable housing rethink how we think about zoning where you have a lot of places that are only single family zoned uh, places that you need to have multifamily, because a lot of times that is a way of kind of offsetting costs for a lot of people. Um, So these are all options that we have to think. I think it's not only an affordable housing issue, but a zoning issue as well. And we have to think about creatively, how do we want to lift these families out? Not maybe this generation, but the next generation or however else because we want to have them in areas where it's just not all impoverished people just shoved together. Um, you know, we were both familiar with like the projects in New York and that's not, that doesn't help the situation because you just have poverty amongst poverty and you're keeping, you're actually trying to isolate and ghetto ties that whole thing where you're like, this is where the poor people belong. And that's, that's not how we should look at this issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, maybe more than half a penny on the dollar will, will help as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, more than half, the half, more than half penny fund. Uh, but you know, I think now they're trying to get it up to two cents,
0: two cents for every dollar. So I'm sure, I'm sure anything helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's end on a positive note. Uh, yeah. how much how, you, you've done tremendously well raising cap raising funds right out of the gate and you're gearing up, you've got, a team of volunteers, what can people do to help you, right? If there's anything, and if there's any other message that you want to put out, feel free, but let, let people know, um, you know, where they can find you, what the best ways to get involved in, or even just learn more about what you're doing.
1: Right. Right. So I would say if if people want to get involved, um, they would go to Perryman, P E R R Y M A N for Virginia.com. Uh, you can donate there. You can also sign up to volunteer there. Uh, we need both. Uh, donations are always welcome uh, because that's really what's gonna fund this campaign. Uh, and my issues are, I, I look at it as the three E's, education, economics, and equity. We want a society where people uh, are, you know, have a standard, a high standard of living, are feel valued and respected by their government and are served by the government. Uh, and so if people want to get involved Go to that website, uh, donate to our campaign. Uh, While, even if you're not in Virginia, this virus more so than anything else has exposed why this is important. Because uh, the borders that we have on the imaginary maps and stuff, if someone's sick and they come into your state, it's gonna affect you. We need good government everywhere. And we also need to be looking out for each other everywhere. We're all in this situation together. uh, And whether you have a good government or bad government or everything else, it's going to affect all of us. So um, uh, I, I just would hope that people would support the campaign, support someone who's looking to have that strong leadership we've been talking about the whole show and and doing the right thing and looking at it from a, uh, a human perspective, that we all need to take care of each other and help each other out when we can.
0: That's it, everybody. That was an amazing conversation with Sean. Check him out online. Even if you don't live in Virginia, check out what he's about. Think about how that can make an impact in your state. And if you have the resources, please support him. I I chose to support Sean even though I don't live in Virginia because he's a friend of mine and I wanted to do the right thing and help him out because I believe in the future of America. Peace out.